0: Peter Jung was supposed to pray or, or was supposed to preach this evening. Um, because of his family situation, I think he needed to go and just be present with his family, which makes absolute sense. After that, Ross agreed to help preach and fill in the pulpit, and he's going to do his youth message. He's at a wedding right now. Yada, yada, yada. Add another six people that couldn't do it, and here we are. <laughs> right? Um, and so, what we're gonna do is we're gonna go ahead and take some time, which is something that I actually have wanted to do here for a while, but just never had the opportune time to do so, um, where we can actually read and meditate on a sermon from the past. Now, this shouldn't be a replacement for a no- normal like Sunday sermon, right, or a main feeding, nor is this um, the same thing as plagiarizing a sermon. So sometimes pastors, especially now at the age of internet, have been pretty notorious or taking sermons online and just ripping off of it and then saying it, that it's their own. It's not, and you'll be able to tell pretty quickly because the language is from someone in the 19th century, right? Um, but what I'm going to tell you very clearly is that this is given by Charles Spurgeon, not me, but I'm going to be reading it, right? And and hopefully you'll be edifying for us tonight. Okay, um, so we're going to be looking at Matthew 15, uh, verse 23. And, and before we... Uh, well, I think everyone's there, but before we do that, just a few words on Spurgeon, and then I'll read the verse, and we'll, we'll jump in. Spurgeon was considered the prince of preachers. Uh, the king of preachers is John Chrysostom in the days of the early church fathers, but there wasn't another one that was such a titan behind the pulpit until Charles Spurgeon shows up, right? Uh, Charles Spurgeon begins his preaching ministry um, pretty young, at 18 or 19. He already has his own parish, and He's preaching. And, and Spurgeon was really gifted with kind of word imagery with the way that he would describe things with his sermon. Um, and what he did at his church was really similar to what you see here. Um, they sang hymns uh, in a cappella, actually. They had no instruments. And he would often complain that, that when people were all singing a cappella, the verses would kind of drag and take forever. And there were times where he would have it even interrupt a song and be like, okay, guys, we have to pick this up because I only have so much time for my sermon. Right. Uh, In addition to that, he also practiced what we would understand to be healthy church membership. Uh, He did every single membership interview for all 6,000 of his members. Get that? Most of his day was spent doing membership interviews for his members, getting to know them personally. And often he would defer them if he felt like they weren't clear on the gospel and give them more time. Um, He would be thinking about specific needs that his congregants would have, and he has sincere care for them. Uh, In addition to that, Spurgeon had a really an unprecedented ability to just draw out gold nuggets from the passage. So he was a bit like an old Puritan in that he would take a very small portion of Scripture and he would just keep unpacking more and more gold underneath that specific line of Scripture. He'd just keep going into it. Um, But the way that he would prepare his sermons would be really interesting. He would have his wife go into a study and lay out all the commentaries on that verse right? Just an open book scattered throughout the room. And the night before Sridhar would go to preach, he would walk into his study, he would kind of take a little walking pace, walk around, take a peek there, walk around, take a peek there, and then he would go to bed. And then he would show up the next morning with one of the best sermons in human existence. It's just not fair, (laughs) right? Uh, It's just not fair for a man to be that Gifted, And we're going to be able to glean a little bit of that gold from him uh, today. Uh, as we look at Matthew chapter 15 verse 25. Let's look at that together. This is the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman who comes and, and asks God for help because her daughter is being tormented by a demon. And uh, she says this. But she came, knelt before him, and said, Lord, help me. Our text tells us of a case of real distress. and it shows us how a woman prayed when in agony. It's a good thing when young people begin to write, especially if they think of writing for the press. If they will, before they send away their manuscript, take their pen and strike out every superfluous word. As a general rule, for conversation or for correspondence, every word that we can do without was better omitted. As it is difficult to travel if we are encumbered with a great quantity of luggage, so it is difficult to make our meaning clear when it is crushed beneath the weight of too many words. Amen. Take your pen then, young author. Sit down quickly and strike out all the merely ornamental words that you have written, and when you have got rid of them, you will probably have some respectable sentences left. This woman had no need to omit any of her words, for she was not in a state of mind to utter a sentence that could be pruned of a single word. She was in such a condition that every word that came out of her mouth was like hot shot poured out of her heart. I had almost said that every letter, as well as every syllable, and every word that she uttered was coined in blood. She speaks at any rate. Burning language as blood heat. And And the words, as they drop into my ear, come with a kind of overpowering force. So great is their intensity. Lord, help me. There's not a syllable to spare. The words are all short, simple, living, burning, from the first one to the last. I like this kind of pleading, and I commend it to you who are accustomed to pain and sufferings, or who have to do with this rough world, as many of you have. You find that in your time of distress, you have to throw away a great many merely ornamental things. And you only keep what is real, solid, and substantial. Here is a woman who must deal in realities. For she has at home a real daughter, really tormented by a real devil but she believes that before her is a real Savior. And she intends not to let him slip away through any lack of intensity on her part. She follows him with clamorous cries. If she be repulsed, she still pursues him. And when at last he gives her what looks like a wry word, she will not believe it. But she adores him. She worships him. And she cries out of the depths of her soul, Lord, help me. I want to speak specially about her prayer. We have begun with it and we will end with it. But before I get to the prayer, there are two or three things I want to hold up for your admiration. First, let us admire this this woman's importunity. Quick aside, importunity is like an SAT word. What it means is being persistent, like to the point of being annoying. Like so persistent, just always there, pushy. Time in. I do not hesitate to say, although I am speaking in a large assembly, that there is not one person here who ever did experience such rebuffs or meet such difficulties as this woman did. There may be some who would have a right to stand up and say, Ah, sir, you do not know my experience. My coming to Christ was very hard. I do not know your experience, my dear friend. But I feel sure of this, that your experience cannot be compared with hers. For her, in coming to Christ, she had to surmount greater difficulties than you ever knew. And greater difficulties than any of you are realizing now even though you should be almost driven to despair by the obstacles in your pathway. The poor woman had three special difficulties. The first was that the Lord Jesus Christ did not answer her cries. He answered her not a word. He was himself the word, and yet he did not give her the word she wanted. Jesus is the blessed spokesman of the Eternal by whom God breaks the infinite silences and speaks to man, yet he answered her not a word. He was in the habit of answering prayer, yet he gave her not a single word of response to her petition. He had never been known to turn away a sincere suppliant without a kind reply, yet he gave her not one word. But even then, though she had not a word from Christ to hang her hopes upon, not a promise, not a single word of invitation or encouragement, yet still she clung to Christ and would not let him go until he blessed her. There's not one of you, dear friends, who can say that our Lord Jesus Christ has not spoken to you, for here is a book full of his words, a book, mark you, not a line of which this poor woman had ever seen, She lived in a region where the Old Testament was altogether unknown, and the New Testament was not written. But you have the word of Christ in your homes. They lie in the pew ledge in front of you. They're actually in the corner over here. You can carry them in your pockets wherever you go. Imagine if Spurgeon knew about smartphones. A two-penny testament can be had by anybody So it cannot be said that Jesus Christ has not given you a word. Then how often have you had good words from Christ through the preacher of the gospel? How often has he let fall handfuls on purpose for you, poor troubled soul? You have had sweet words, gracious words, wonderful words of life. It gets into lyrics here, so I'm supposed to sing that part. And plenty of them too. Therefore, I tell you that there is one point in which this woman's difficulties far exceeded yours. And as she pressed on until she gained the desire of her heart, will you not do likewise? Do you not remember how the men of Nineveh hung on to nothing but this? Who can tell? It was a very poor little nail that they clung to. Who can tell? Yet they did cling to it, and they found mercy. There have been some who have found comfort in what God has not said. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. In other words, God did not say, seek me and you won't get anything. So will you not find comfort in what he has said? Especially may you be cheered and blessed by such words as these. Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I will pardon them whom I reserve. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now between not a word and all these words, what a difference there is. And so, what a difference there is between you and this poor woman. How much you have to help you. Come then to Jesus. Come even now, pleading the promise, and you shall not go away without the blessing. Next, this woman had another great difficulty, and that was that all the disciples were against her. They said to Jesus, send her away, for she crieth after us. She disturbs us. We cannot hear your exposition. We cannot be heard ourselves, which is also very important. Send her away. Send her away. She has such a harsh voice. She does not speak our language. She talks in the tongue of Tyre or Sidon, and we do not like it. She is so troublesome. She is first bawling after John, and next she is calling after Peter. There is no keeping her quiet. Send her away. Send her away. Although this may have been a very secondary thing compared with Christ's silence, yet it may have bred in her heart great discouragement. And she may have felt in her spirit that she could not have long hold out. Yet she did hold out until the blessing came. Now I venture to say that there is no one here who is seeking the Savior who has had Christ's disciples against him. Oh dear heart, there are many in this house tonight who are not against you. They would do anything they could for you, to cheer you, to bring you to the Savior. I know some who, when the service is over, will very likely waylay you in the aisles. In other words, like trap you to talk to you. They're always looking out to find persons who may be under concern of soul to see whether they can utter a word of encouragement to them. They will not say, send her away. They will want to stop you a little while and will talk to you very earnestly about your soul and try to point out to you the way into life and peace. I am sure that you have not the difficulty that this poor woman had. If you had, I would still exhort you to imitate her importunity or her persistence. But as you have not, let her importunity shame you if you are in the least degree backward and come at you at once boldly to the Savior and say, I must now find the mercy that I need. I cannot go away until I do find it. God grant that many of you make that good resolution. There was, however, a third discouragement must have been greater than the other two. That was that when the Savior did speak, he said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It was as much as saying, I'm not sent to this woman of Tyre and Sidon. I can do nothing for her within the bounds of my commission. And yet, when the woman heard that sentence, instead of being daunted by it, she came to Christ and worshipped him and said, Lord, help me. I may be addressing someone who's been thinking over the doctrine of election. Of course, Spurgeon would talk about Calvinism. A doctrine which ought not to give trouble to anybody, but it often does. (laughs) It may be said that you have said in your heart, what if I should not be elected? What if the blessed things of the covenant of grace should not be for me? I beseech you, do not be persuaded by Satan to stop there, but go to Jesus, just as this woman did. She seemed to say to herself, whether this Christ of God be sent to a Tyre and Sidon woman or not, I shall go and worship him and cry, Lord, help me. She heard that Christ was not sent to that country, but she seemed to say, quote, If you are not sent, Lord, yet still I am here. If you were not sent to me, perhaps I am sent to you. She felt that there must be some way of getting over the difficulty. She believed that by some kind of ingenuity, even if she could not tell how, the difficulty could be removed. This glorious, loving Savior, into whose radiant face she looked, could not repulse her. She felt that he could not. And dear friends, I can be- no more believe that Christ will repulse a sinner. That I can look up to the sun and believe that it will ever freeze me. It cannot be. It is too bright, too full of warmth to turn me into ice. And I cannot look into the Savior's face and believe that he will ever cast away a poor soul that comes to him. So somehow or other, this poor woman seemed to feel, quote, I cannot get over the difficulty, but I will go around it. That is always a wise method for my own part. I have often learned what a joy it is to cast anchor under the lee of a great impassable thing that I cannot understand. I like, if I'm traveling, to see the river open up, to find my bark gliding gently along the surrounding hills. But if all of a sudden I find that the channel of the river is entirely blocked up, am I just as comfortable? If the sailor lets down the anchor and we spend the night under the lee of some big towering rock, why not? He's saying, I am comfortable. Sorry, down in the form of question. He's saying, I am just as comfortable for the boat to stop. Why not? It is very well to understand things, but I do not know that we are much the better for understanding anything. Understanding sometimes puffs us up, but we are always benefited by believing. So my friend, whenever you come hard and fast against something which you cannot get over, do not try to get over it, but just pull up there and say, if it be so, let it be so. But anyhow... God is gracious, Christ is merciful, and I'm going to cast myself at the crucified Savior's feet and to trust in him. Now, this woman, notwithstanding this terrible discouragement, after actually hearing the Savior say, I am not sent to you, yet nevertheless persevered with her appeal. None of you have ever heard him say that, you are not among the elect. Why should you be elect as well as anyone else? None of you have ever heard him say that you are not, oh, sorry, none of you have ever climbed to heaven and found that your names are not written in the role of God's chosen, and you will never climb there to read it all. All such things are hidden from your sight. Your business is to cling to Christ's dear feet. And never let him go until he grants you the desire of your heart. That is my first remark. Admire this woman's importunity. We're about halfway. We have a short prayer time, which is why I feel free to read this entire thing. Number two. Now for a few minutes, I invite you, dear friends, to admire her resort to the Lord himself. Then she came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. She is to be admired first because she turned away from the disciples. I could not help smiling as I read just now what the disciples said. Send her away, for she crieth after us. Poor soul. She never cried after them. She knew better than to do that. It was their own self-importance that made them think so. If she had begun to cry after them, their black looks would have soon stopped her from doing so. That's just blank looks, by the way. Uh, But she did not make such a mistake as that. Oh, no. She seemed to say, it's not after you that I am crying. Neither Peter nor James nor John can give me the help I need. So it is with us. We are not crying after the saints as some poor souls are doing, hoping that saints, long since dead and buried, who have gone with this mortal life, may make intercession for them before the throne of God. No, we are not crying after them, if any of you are. I pray you cease that folly and cry to the Master. Let this be your cry. Lord, help me. Not Peter, help me, nor Mary, help me, but Jesus, help me. Lord, help me. He can do it, but saints cannot. They were poor sinners who had to be saved by grace like the rest of us, and they are singing now to the praise of the God of grace, but they have no grace to give to us. Mind, dear friends, that you'd never think of going to them, but go straight away to the master, as the poor woman did. Then she came and she worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. She went also Away from all the prescribed paths, away from all the prescribed paths, the Savior seemed to say to her that there was no way for her to come. He did, but seemed to tell her that the roads at present were indeed specially for the house of Israel, and he had come to bless them beyond all others. But the woman seems to say, quote, if there is not a road open, then I must make one. I will go over hedge and ditch, but I must find my Savior. Her heart was so strongly resolved upon to the coming of Christ that whether she came in the orthodox way or not, she must come. Oh, how I wish that some poor sinner here might be so stirred up with the same desire that he would say, I must find the Lord Jesus somehow. If I've heard one minister and God has not blessed him to me, I will hear another. And if hearing the gospel is not blessed to me, I will sit up at night, read the scriptures. And if the Bible is not blessed to me, I will go on my knees and cry to God for mercy. And I will never cease crying to him until the mercy comes. For somehow or somewhere, I must get it. I must find God in Christ Jesus, that I may obtain the salvation of my soul. Yet once more, dear friends, I admire this woman. I hold her up as a model for your imitation. Because she resorted to Christ, away from the disciples, and from all prescribed paths. She went to him. Yes, that is the beauty of it. She came and worshipped him. She fell at his feet, and her prayer was, Lord, help me. She did not prescribe how she should be helped, for she believed in his wisdom. She did not dictate to him what he should do, for she believed in his judgment and prudence. All she said was, Lord, help me. She did not think that her case was beyond his power, for she believed in his almightiness. So she prayed, Lord, help me. She did not think her case could be beyond his pity. So she pleaded, Lord, help me. True, I am only a Gentile dog, but Lord, help me. I am a Syrophoenician woman, but Lord, help me. I have a poor daughter possessed of a devil. Lord, help me. Me, She pleads thus with Christ, and it is wonderful what such pleading can accomplish. Do not come here and merely, merely repeat certain prayers. Do not go home to your closet simply to say prayers, as if nobody or to everybody, but to get absolutely at the feet of Jesus and plead with him, saying, Lord, I will not let thee go except that thou bless me. For that is the kind of prayer that opens the gates of heaven. The prayer to which nothing can be den- denied. Before I come to the closing portion of my discourse, I ask you thirdly to admire this woman's appropriation of her daughter's case to herself. It's a very long word. Basically, um, the way that she attributes her daughter's problem to herself. Okay? The way she views her daughter's problem as her own problem. I urge you, who seek the conversion of others to follow her example. Notice, she did not pray, Lord, help my daughter, but Lord, help me. At first, she pleaded for her daughter and mentioned the circumstances of her case. But as she grew more intense and fervent in her supplication, there seemed to be no division between the mother and the daughter. The mother had absorbed the daughter, the great heart of the pleading, Seemed to contain the one pleaded, pleaded for with all her agony. Lord, help me. Do you catch the idea? When you are praying, or when you are pleading with God for your Sunday school class, it is not simply uh, Mary and Jane and Sarah that you pray for. But you have incorporated all those girls into yourself. And therefore you plead, Lord, help me. And you, my brother, need to get this point if you are really to prevail for your scholars that you will not be asking for John and Thomas and William alone. But you have, but you have so identified yourself with John and Thomas and William that if they are lost, it almost seems as if you were lost. And if they are saved, um, sorry, if you are saved, It will be another heaven to you for each one of them um, to be in heaven. Hold on. I just realized I'm missing my last page. I'm going to make sure I have it on my phone so I can pivot. Isn't this good, guys? I'm just saying. Maybe I'm the only one up here enjoying this, but I love it. Okay, here we go. You know that when Elisha restored the Shunammites' dead son. He went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hands and he stretched himself upon the child. Then, as it were, they became one. And then it was that the new life came through the prophet into the dead child and this is the way to pray for our scholars and our hearers. I am sure that if a minister wants conversions, he must identify himself with his people. There are people nowadays who make a difficulty about Moses praying for Israel, quote, If thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not blot me, I pray thee, out of the book out which thou hast written. And they raise questions about Paul being willing to be separated for Christ for his brethren, his kinsmen according to his flesh. But, oh, there is no difficulty in the matter if you once get to feel such an intense love for the souls of men that you would, as it were, pawn your own salvation. And count it little if you might bring the people to the Savior's feet. A man who has never felt that willingness does not know the true throb of a pastor's heart. He has not been ordained to be a shepherd if he would not lay down his life for the flock if it were necessary. When you get to that point, then the blessing will come. Lord, help me, me. For in my own proper self, I do contain these people for whom my prayer is put up. Now, lastly, it is the chief part of the subject. I want you to admire this woman's prayer itself. This woman's prayer itself. I began my discourse by pointing out to you it's sentientiousness. It's freedom from superfluities. Basically, it's it's away from all the fancy, puffy words that Spurgeon just used there. Now, Again, I bid you to admire it for the same reason. Notice that it asks everything in one little word. Lord, help me. It seems to be a very comprehensive prayer. For although it uses but one very small verb, that verb means a great deal more at first sight than appears to mean. When the woman said, Lord, help me, she did not mean... What we generally mean by help, that is, Lord, do something for me, and I will do the rest. She cannot do anything toward the casting out of the devil from her child, so by that word help, she meant, Lord, do it all, for that is the kind of help that Christ gives. Have you ever heard of the poor, half-witted being who nonetheless had sense enough to understand the gospel? Someone said to him, well, Johnny... How were you saved? Oh, he answered, Jesus Christ did his part, and I did all the rest. Have you ever heard that phrase before? As a quick sigh. Jesus has done all he can do. The rest is up to you. That's what Spurgeon's about to tackle here. And pray, Johnny, what did you do? Well, he said, Jesus Christ saved me, and I did all I could do to prevent it. And that's about all the rest any of us could do. We do not really help in the matter of our salvation, for we cannot. It is Christ's work from first to last, and grace must have all the praise for it. Blessed be that sovereign grace of God. But that word help did mean just this, quote, Lord, will you do all that is wanted? Am I in a dreadful fix? I cannot cure my pure child and I cannot pray aright about her. You have almost shut my mouth by that last word. I am not sent yet. Lord, help me. Teach me what to ask for. Teach me how to ask for it. Teach me what to think of next. Teach me what to do next. Never was a poor creature in such a plight as I am, Lord. Do get me out of it. Do save my poor daughter. It was asking everything in a word which did not at first sight seem to mean much. Lord, help me. And if you'd notice, the prayer was one which brought Christ and the poor woman together. This is one of my favorite paragraphs from Spurgeon. The prayer was one which brought Christ and this poor woman together. Lord and me. And here is the link. Lord, help me. Some of you poor creatures want to get to Christ by doing something for him. You have undertaken a very heavy task. You will never get to him that way. The only way is for him to stoop down and do something for you. And you shall go into partnership and have fellowship with one another. And if you agree to this arrangement, he will find everything that is needed. And you shall have it all given to you by grace. These must be the terms. That he, from first to last, must do it all, and be all, and have all the glory. If you will agree to that condition, the company may be started at once. And what a blessed company it shall be. The Lord and yourself linked together by this little word, help. Lord, help me. If you are to succeed as this woman did, you must imitate her perseverance even in spite of Christ's apparent refusal to help her. This is a lesson which is taught us in many other parts of the word. She that wins her suit with the unjust judge is the importunate widow who will not be refused. He that gets the loaves at midnight is a man who continues knocking till his friend rouses himself or wakes up and gives him all that he asks. Oh beloved, plead thus with God. Plead earnestly. Plead for your salvation as you would your life. Lift up the cry. Gracious Lord, incline thine ear. My request vouchsafe to hear. Hear my never ceasing cry. Give me Christ, or else I die. Wealth or honor I disdain. Earthly comforts, all are vain. These can never satisfy. Give me Christ or else I die, and you shall surely have Christ, for he never finally refuses to listen to such pleading as that. Lastly, dear friends, I commend this prayer to you because it is such a handy prayer. You can use it when you are in a hurry. You can use it when you are in a fright. You can use it when you have not time to bow your knee. You can use it in the pulpit if you are going to preach. You can use it when you are opening your shop. You can use it when you are rising in the morning. It is such a handy prayer that I hardly know any position in which you cannot pray it. Lord, help me. Often, when you are brought to some great emergency, you may use it and feel as if it were the best prayer that was ever composed. Do you suffer much? Do you sometimes fall back upon the pillows feeling you cannot bear anymore? Does it not seem natural then for you to pray, Lord, help me? Do you often lie awake at night? Have you counted the clock round in the seasons of your suffering? Oh, then I know that you will feel that this is a good prayer to offer in the middle of the night. Lord, help me. Do you wake up in the morning just as weary as when you went to bed? Are you gradually losing uh, strength? Are you slowly wasting away? Do they tell you that you will soon be gone? Oh, then as the clock ticks, I think it may remind you of this prayer. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. It is a sick woman's prayer, a sick child's prayer, a sick Man's prayer, it will suit any of you at such times. Are some of you losing a great deal of money just now? Is business very bad? Are you out of a situation? Have you walked up and down the streets and worn your shoes out and yet found nothing to do? I think this prayer will suit you at this this moment. And all day tomorrow, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. For he can, you know. The keys of providence are not taken out of his hand yet. He knows how to deliver the righteous out of all their troubles. Go to him with this prayer. Lord, help me. Are any of you tempted much? Or or, are very much tempted from without by surroundings that are peculiarly, peculiarly dangerous? Are you tempted by Satan? Are any of you exposed just now to some very special trial? Have your feet almost gone? Have your steps well nigh slipped? Now here is a prayer that will just hold you up and keep you from falling. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. No, says someone, you have not touched my case yet. <laughs> Perhaps you are going to a new situation or you are just undertaking fresh duties and you wonder how you will be able to fill the sphere uh, the sphere which was occupied so well by the one who went before you. Well, do not enter upon that new sphere without this prayer, Lord, help me. If you pray this prayer from your heart, you will be succored, or you will be comforted. You shall play the man and do well for God and for his truth. Possibly you are already in a situation where you are under great strain and perhaps Your physical strength is overtaxed and your mind is depressed by the wear and tear of a cruel servitude. Well, if you cannot get out of it, pray the Lord to help you in it and let this be your constant cry. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. It is wonderful how he can aid and direct his people. And you, young brother, against the door, You just came inside. (laughs) Get that. Hoping to get a message that will guide you in your present difficulty. And here is that message. Go home and pray about it. Cry to God about it. And you shall have direction. Let this be your cry. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And he will help you. Is there a dear little girl here who wants to find Christ? I give her this short prayer to pray tonight. Lord, help me. Is there a gray-haired man here, leaning upon his staff, who has not yet found the Savior? Then as you sit in that aisle, cry, Son of David, Jesus Christ the Lord, do help and save me. And he will. This prayer will do to live with. this This prayer will do to live with. This prayer will do to die with. It is a prayer for those who usually worship in this place. It is a prayer for the people in the streets all around. It is a prayer for everybody and a prayer for every place wherever you may be. Lord, help me. Blessed be his name. The Lord will answer this prayer. He has helped his people. He is still Israel's helper. He will be their helper even to the end. Therefore, put your trust in him and go forward with confidence into the future. And may his gracious presence be with you evermore. Amen. Let's pray.